Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. turn your Bibles tonight to Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah 19 and the burden of Egypt. The burden of Egypt, as we've gone through these burdens that uh, occupy 11 chapters here in this part of the book of Isaiah, almost all of this has a present fulfillment in the Assyrian invasion, and then a vast majority of it also has a future fulfillment, uh, which will come in that time that we called the very last days, or the last day, or in the day of the Lord, the time of Jacob's trouble, the end of the age of grace, the end of the time of the Gentiles, these phrases that scripture describes to us as the last days. And folks, the way things are going right now, um, these passages are important to us because if we were ever to look at the world and say, we could be on the verge of these very days, it would certainly be now. And so would you join me? We'll pray, and we're going to take chapter 19 in its entirety tonight uh, as we study here in the book of Isaiah and continue our chapter and verse study through the Bible. Father, we thank you uh, for what you are allowing us to do. And Lord, we, we didn't get great news this week. We admit that to you. And some of us are very disappointed, disillusioned maybe, but you are still the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, This did not take you by surprise. Things are different here in Los Angeles than they are uh, in the rural parts of this state. And so we just ask for great patience for us as a church. Help us to minister where we can and as we can, uh, which for now is primarily virtual. And pray that your people would still be engaged in the act of worship, still be engaged in the act of studying your Bible, still be engaged in personal discipleship, still be engaged in evangelism. Lord, we are still the church and we still have a purpose. As we study your word, bless us tonight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The late Dr. Wilbur Smith, who was the founder or one of the founders of Fuller Theological Seminary, Uh, but an expert on prophecy. He was one of the leading prophetic scholars of his time. He died in 1976. Declared that this particular chapter contains the most important prophetic utterance concerning Egypt uh, in all of the Bible. And we find some incredible predictions first about the Nile River, and we'll uh, begin there. And as we get to verse 24, we are going to have what to me... Uh, tonight seems utterly impossible. And that is Israel, Egypt, and Assyria, which would be modern-day Syria, most of Turkey, part of northern Iraq, and even a portion of Iran and Kazakhstan would all be joined together as one, and better still, would be worshiping the Lord. And so when we get to that part, it's, it's going to be kind of a hallelujah moment looking forward into the future. And, and so as you begin to look at this passage, uh, it begins by reminding us that someday God's grace is going to flow to these parts of the world, which we could look at tonight and say, there's not a lot of the grace of God that is visible 
in the primarily and predominantly Arab world that would be in those nations that we currently know as Egypt and Syria and Turkey and Iraq and part of the Saudi empire. It is interesting, notice how this begins, verse 1, the burden against Egypt. For behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will totter in his presence, and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. And I will set Egyptians against Egyptians. Everyone will fight his brother and everyone against his neighbor, city against city and kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of Egypt will fail in its midst, and I will utterly destroy their counsel. They will consult with idols and charmers and mediums and sorcerers, and the Egyptians I will give into the hand of a cruel master. A fierce king will rule over them, says the Lord the Lord of hosts. And now I want you to notice verse 5. Very specific what's being said here. And it would help if you could all read Hebrew. And so I'll give you a little bit of understanding of what it says there. The waters will fail from the sea. And it really is saying, and there will be a dam on the river far away. That would be an appropriate rendering of the original language here. There would be a dam. Now, bear in mind that dams during that time were certainly not damming the Nile River. The Nile River is the longest river in in Africa. It is purported to be the longest river in the world. That may be debatable. Perhaps the Amazon is longer. But it's a massive river. It is a huge river, much like our Mississippi. It's hard to fathom how much water pours down uh, the Nile but the waters will fail from the sea. In other words, the waters will not reach the sea. The river will be wasted and dried up. The river will turn foul. The brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up. The reeds, the rushes will wither. The papyrus reeds by the river, by the mouth of the river, and everything sown by the river will wither, be driven away, and be no more, And fishermen also will mourn, and all those who will lament, as they cast their hooks into the river, they will languish who spread nets on the water. Now, to put this in perspective to the Egyptians during the Pharaonic times, uh, specifically during the time that the Jewish people would have been in captivity, the river Nile was considered the source of all life. It was literally worshipped. And it was the source of pretty much all things Egyptian. And so this river is important, not only in Egyptian history, especially ancient history, but it is certainly important to the Egyptian people today. If you look at the map of the continent, and we'll get there shortly, and especially that area, we have a prophecy here that, now imagine this is being written almost 700 years B.C., so 686 B.C. or so, Isaiah the prophet receives a vision from the Lord, and he says there's going to be a dam on the Nile River. To a person during that day and time, that would be not only an impossibility, it was an engineering impossibility. There was no one who could have constructed that dam. The, the amount of material that would be, need to be moved, and furthermore, 
you have to stop the flow of the Nile River and divert 100% of it. By some estimates, when the Nile is at full flow, uh, it pours roughly five and a half billion gallons of water into the Mediterranean Sea at its high flow in one hour. That's a lot of water. And so it, 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 it would be an impossibility. And yet Isaiah is specific. He says the waters will fail from the sea. In other words, it will be dammed up. And so Isaiah sees first a civil war. And then he sees a dam. I believe that this dam is actually a prediction of the twin dams that are currently on the Nile River, the dams at Aswan, of which there is an old one and there is a newer one. Uh, In 1970, as the ecologists began to look at the way these dams were constructed and what they actually did, they, they got to this place of understanding exactly what Isaiah is seeing here, that this was going to be an ecological disaster. And, and so as they began to build these dams, one of the things that occurred, especially with the Aswan High Dam, but also the lower dam, which is the older of these two, if you happen to be uh, watching on a device, and you can look at the pictures that I have here. Uh, in 1960, UNESCO uh, surveys this area, and they recognize that there are 24 major archaeological sites having to do with the history of Egypt, specifically the history of the pharaohs. And so they would have to be moved to a much safer location, including these incredible statues that were built by Ramses II of himself and his bride, Nefertiti, uh, that stand over 100 feet tall, that once the lake that is going to be created by these dams fills it up, making a lake almost 400 miles long, by the way, these would all be underwater. It was going to bury the history of the Egyptian people. And so it created this incredible movement to do something about these major archaeological sites. And so they began to look at how to move some of these things, and in doing so, to try and put it into perspective, this satellite view that you have of that region of the world, as the Russians finally came in and and gave enough money to complete the project, the, the lower dam is completed, and then the high dam is completed, And so the the Nile River is effectively stopped for a period of time, exactly as Isaiah said. And so as you look at these, there are so many environmental problems that have happened that there are almost too many to name, including the ones that Isaiah sees here. The Nile River Delta, if you remember for the Jewish people, they were sent to a land called Goshen, which means beautiful land or the best land. The Nile River Delta was at one point in time the most fertile spot in in all of the Asiatic world. So if you're talking about the Middle East or North Africa, but just look at it in general, if you were looking around the Mediterranean, the most fertile soil was the Nile River Delta. The reason being is as the river flooded every year, as the water continued down that water course, it deposited silt And so that silt would pan out into the river delta, and it was marvelous farmland. Some, if you ladies who happen to love Egyptian cotton sheets, uh, it comes from Egypt, and it specifically comes from the Nile River Delta. That's where it's grown. And so the ecological damage that happened is these soils now were no longer replenished every year. 
And in fact, the salinity rose in those soils because the Mediterranean, it being so low and so close to sea level, that the Mediterranean seawater began to seep underground and caused the entire Nile River Delta uh, to become basically a salt desert. It's not completely so today, but nonetheless, it, it suffered a tremendous archaeological damage. The other thing that occurred is because of the flow of the Nile into the Mediterranean Sea, the most wonderful fishery in all of the Mediterranean was the mouth of the Nile River. So all of those fish that were in the Mediterranean Sea would come and feed at the mouth of the Nile. And so the Egyptians had this seemingly unlimited uh, resource of fish. That dried up. The fishing in in the river itself began to dwindle because the water levels were low, the water got warmer, and the fish that were native to the river died. And so as it stands today, this archaeological disaster uh, created by the damming of the river there at Aswan uh, created this, this situation to where the fishermen that lived along the banks of the Nile for more than a thousand miles now only had one place that they could fish. Well, if you're a subsistence farmer and you live closer to the border of the Sudan or closer to the border of Libya or Chad, uh, you ended up having no source of nutrition. And so people died. They got intestinal parasites. And there was just this incredible thing. And it seems as though in this passage that Isaiah is saying, there's going to be a time when it gets towards the end that the Nile River is going to be dammed far away, and it is very far away. Uh, As you look at the headwaters of the Nile River, they're nearly 4,000 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, And here's this lake, Lake Nasser, that's been created. By the way, it has some of the best big game fishing in the world in it because there are two species of tilapia and a couple of other non-native species that have now grown to gargantuan size, but there's no fishing for the people. And so as the civil war ensues during Isaiah's time, as the waterlogged soils in that region become unusable, as the salinity rises in the delta, it becomes unusable. As diseases like bizarra and schistomatosis, these these parasites that are intestinal, begin to be very normal and still are normal in the region today, the loss of oxygen in the water and all the things that happen, Isaiah's basically saying, look, This is what's going to happen. And we look at that area of the world today, that is exactly what we see. We had the same exact problem, by the way, when the Colorado River was dammed. So if you go to Hoover Dam, Boulder Dam, whichever you remember it as, if you go to Hoover Dam, if you go to Lake Mead outside of Las Vegas, and you see this incredible hydroelectric project, what you don't see is the ecological damage that was done to California in in the Imperial Valley near El Centro. Being from San Diego, when we would drive that way, uh, you, you, the, the amount of salinity in the desert soils out there looked like a salt desert. Well, it used to be lush and green in farmlands. And in fact, Mexico sued so that the United States would continue to release enough water to at least irrigate their crops in northern Mexico. And so Isaiah saw this and prophesied of it. It is a reality. You can go to that area of the world today and, and as, as you look, this incredible temple, one of the things that got moved, and if you get National Geographic magazine, you will have just seen an article on this particular monument, Abu Simbel, 
um, which would have been 180 feet, in essence, below the surface of the water. And so that if you looked at this on this picture that I'm showing you, what you see actually is an artificial mountain. It is a steel superstructure that's covered with concrete. Uh, they cut these giant statues into 130-some pieces, some of them weighing uh, 25 tons or more, and, and then moved them here to save them. They had to do this to 26 of the 28 sites, and two of them, unfortunately, are under Lake Nasser. And so Egypt gets a preview, in essence, in these woes, of things that would come as they sought to make allegiances and alliances with the world. Egypt made an alliance with China. Egypt made an alliance with Iran. Egypt made an alliance ultimately with Russia. They tried to get the United States to pay for those dams. And ultimately, it worked out to their great disadvantage. And so Isaiah saw all of that. As we continue in verse 9, some additional disasters uh, that we see, that we can see in verse 16 as being timed for us, by that all-familiar phrase that we've seen here in Isaiah, and that we see throughout the Old Testament in that day, referring to the very last days and very specifically to the tribulation or that final seven-year period that Daniel speaks about uh, in his prophecy of the, of the 70 weeks there in Daniel 9. Verse 9, moreover, those who work in fine flax. In other words, those that would be making uh, fabrics, those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed. Why? Because they won't have the flax to weave with anymore. They won't have the cotton uh, to make that Egyptian cotton. Its foundations will be broken. All who make wages will be troubled of soul. Interestingly enough, as you think about the history of Egypt, you would think with a country that can trace its civilization back some four plus thousand years, by some accounts almost 6,000 years, if you were to have said, you know, the United States of America, what would it look like if we had not just been here a little over 250 years, but we had been around for 4,000 years or 6,000 years? Do you think we would probably guess that we'd be one of the most advanced countries on the face of the earth? And yet Egypt is one of the most poverty-stricken countries on the face of the earth. Look what your Bible says. All who make wages will be troubled of soul. Surely the princes of Zoan are fools. The Pharaoh's wise counselor give foolish counsel. How do I say to Pharaoh, I am the son of wise, the son of ancient kings? You know, the history of Egypt is, is fantastic. If you had the opportunity uh, to go to the exposition hall uh, at Los Angeles Museum of Natural History. Uh, if you've ever seen the treasures of King Tut, uh, this incredible tomb that uh, is found in the 1930s by Howard Carter, by Lord Carnarvon, this untouched tomb, uh, and you look at what was done, that's the history of the Egyptian people. It's mind-boggling. Go to the hypostyle temple, the city of Karnak or Thebes, and you kind of have to ask yourself, what in the world happened? How did they end up like this? Where are your wise men? Let them tell you now. Let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. Notice what it says. You know, God doesn't miss anything. 
The Jewish people spent 400 years imprisoned as slaves in Egypt. You think God missed that? He did not. God doesn't miss anything. And it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Purpose against them. Tell them. Let them know what the Lord of hosts has purpose against Egypt. The princes of Zoan will have become fools. The princes of Nopoth are deceived. They have also deluded Egypt. Those who are the mainstay of its tribes. The Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in her midst. Staggering prophetical view of Egypt. You would think it'd be doing really well having been around so long. Notice this. And they've caused Egypt to err in all of her work. Egypt is one of the most plagued and troubled places on the planet. That's not saying all Egyptians, by the way. But their government has been a train wreck. It has been monumentally brutal to its people. The rich are fabulously rich, and most everyone else is incredibly poor. And we might complain about the gap in the middle class here in this country, but the average Egyptian doesn't know what middle class even is. As a drunken man staggers in his vomit, that's not a very pretty picture. This is talking about Egypt itself, the country. Neither will there be any work for all of Egypt which is the head or the tail, we don't know, the palm branch, the bulrush may do. Just stick a plant on it, make that the head, make that the tail. Egypt would end up in the last days, in the final years of its existence, so needy and so decrepit that the Lord says, look, I'm telling you this in advance. When you see Egypt fall into utter disrepair, you'll know that you're getting near the end. Here's how we know that, verse 16. In that day, again, looking all the way forward, past the history that even we are in today, towards the very last days, Egypt will be like a woman and will be afraid and fear because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts. In other words, God's saying, look, you had your chance, you had your glory, you had your splendor, you had your pharaohs, you had your power. There was a time when Israel itself was visited by the queen of Sheba. There's a time when the Egyptians traded with Israel. One of the remarkable things that's hard for people to comprehend when you're in Egypt and you come down to the port city of Elat, which is on the Red Sea, it's actually in the Gulf of Aqaba. So not the Suez, which is the one furthest west, but Aqaba, which is east. One side of it is Saudi Arabia. And at this very little corner where you have Elat, You also have next to it, less than 10 miles away, Egypt on one side. You have Jordan just adjacent to it to the north. You have Saudi Arabia just adjacent to it to the south. They're literally surrounded by Egypt, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia. And the country of Israel at that point, uh, where it meets the Jordanian border, is about four miles wide. And so Egypt had its time. It's a massive country. 
And there was a time when it had tremendous wealth and fabulous power. They ruled the world, but they do not rule the world anymore. They would like to, and they've attempted to, and they've especially attempted to attack the nation Israel. Notice what it says, a waving of the hand of the Lord. It's just like, nah, you can't go that way, which he waves over it. And the land of Judah, now get this, please mark this, underline it, and then let me share with you what I'm going to share with you next. The land of Judah, that would have been the southern kingdom. So look at it as the southern half of Israel, which occupies mostly the desert. It's the Negev. It is the Dead Sea. It is one of the most desolate places on the planet. It is the lowest place on the planet. But there, interestingly enough, the Jewish people seem to have figured out a way to make billions mining all kinds of trace minerals that are needed for semiconductors. The Egyptians had it in their power for thousands of years and managed to do nothing with it. The hand of the Lord of hosts, which he is waving over at the land of Judah, will be a terror to Egypt. And everyone who makes mention of it will be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he has determined against it. In other words, the Lord said, I am going to protect Judah. I'm going to protect what we would call modern-day Israel. And I'm going to wave my hand over what was the most formidable military power and kingdom in the world, Egypt. And I'm going to tell you that Egypt will bow to Israel. Now let's look at a little bit of the history of the Jewish people when they came back into the land on May 14th, 15th of 1948. Immediately, they were attacked by all of their Arab nations that surround them. Their neighbors, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, so it was known uh, Transjordan for a time. The Saudis kind of, sort of tried to stay out of it. But Egypt was a huge, huge, huge force. Had at the time the largest air force, the largest navy, and the largest standing army in the Middle East. What happened? They got slaughtered. They lost virtually every piece of armor they owned. Their airplanes were blown up on the ground. They attempted again in the 1950s and 60s what was known then as the reprisal operations where Egypt would make incursions, they would fight over the, the then uh, proposed Suez Canal, and they would launch attack after attack after attack. They lost every one of those. Then in 1956, as the Suez Canal is being completed, uh, it's operational, they want complete control over it, and they decide they're going to take the land on the other side of the canal and they're going to attack Israel. They lose that war. Then comes 1967. Once again, all of the neighbors that surround Israel decide to attack Israel. This little tiny nation that's not as big as Delaware, that at the time only had 3 million people in totality in it, that its army is made up of its citizens, ill-equipped, uh, completely outnumbered, completely outgunned, 
1967, had the Israelis not given back the Temple Mount, had not given back the Golan Heights, had not given back the city of Damascus, which they reached the outskirts of, then Israel would have been roughly five to ten times the size it is today if they had kept all that land. But to make peace, they pushed back the Egyptians, the Syrians, the Jordanians, and the Russians who were backing them. God's word says, I will wave my hand over them and they will be defeated. Egypt should have alone, just by sure military might, won the 1967 war. And instead, once again, soundly defeated. 1967 to 70, the war of attrition, same exact thing. And, and really finally, the major battle in 1973, the Yom Kippur War, Egypt again joins in And again, Egypt is defeated. And if you travel to Egypt today, Egypt is absolutely terrified of Israel. Why is that? Because God said so. That's the way it is. Egypt has actually made a peace treaty with Israel. Egypt was the one that finally closed up the border tunnels that were coming from Egypt into the Gaza Strip defeating the Palestinian terrorists that were using schools as launch points for the Katusha missiles that they were launching into Tel Aviv, into Ashkelon. When God says something, it's true. Egypt right now uh, doesn't look like it's going to become a religious center. Notice verse 18, in that day, Five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of, check this out, Canaan. Now, prior to the Jewish people coming back into the land, you could say, well, what was that, Hittite or Edomite? or No, Canaan, in the sense, means the language of Israel, Hebrew. And swear by the Lord of hosts. Now, it's worth noting that at one point in time, Egypt was a Largely Christian country. And in fact, it's famous for the Alexandrian Library, the library at Alexandria, at the time the greatest library in the world. So in 260 BC, as this library is launched, by the time it's finally wiped out, there may have been 400,000 ancient scrolls, predominantly uh, some wings of that, were the gospel texts. They were, they were our Bible, the Masoretic scholars, uh, as they're translating the Bible from uh, the original languages, as it reaches out and ends up in Latin, in the Latin Vulgate, and finally into the Germanic languages, into Egypt. We have the library at Alexandria to thank for that. Coptic Christians used to occupy almost all of the area of the Nile, of the Nile Delta, and yet no longer. But in that day, the last days, swear by the Lord of hosts, and one will be called the city of destruction. And in that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. That's going to be really hard to find today because it's a Muslim country. As a Muslim president, it is governed as a Muslim nation. And in fact, it is illegal for you to proselytize anywhere in Egypt to share the gospel. You you can't do it. 
So this is future, folks. In the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. Can you imagine? You're driving from what is now the Gaza Strip or the southern part of Israel. And you see a sign, welcome to Egypt, God's country. The country of the Lord. That's what it's saying. There's going to be a pillar to the Lord at his border. And it will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. They're going to be like advertising for Jesus. That's not today. They will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors. What oppressors? We're going to look at that as we close out tonight. And he will send them a savior. How many saviors are there, church? There's one. His name is Jesus Christ, God's own son. Send him a savior, a mighty one, and he will deliver them. This is pointing very far forward. But tonight, not much further forward, I don't believe at all. It's pointing towards the tribulation, the very last days. He will send a mighty one to, li- to deliver them. Egypt is going to become a center for worshiping God, our God, the Lord Jesus. They'll put up signs saying this is a Christian country. Maybe they'll adopt a, a cross on their flag. I don't know. I can tell you what it is today. It's under very strict Sharia law. So this is future. But your Bible says there's going to be a last day's peace treaty. For most of you that study world events, uh, you know there hasn't been a whole lot of peace in the Middle East. And there hasn't been a whole lot of peace in a long time. Israel has basically fought for its survival since its founding in 1948. It flies daily sorties both to the south and to the north. So out of Ramat David Air Base there in the Jezreel Valley, uh, up over the Golan and into the southern part of Syria and the southern part of Lebanon, uh, there are armored divisions there. There are missile sites. There's, they're constantly on high alert. But there's going to be a last day's peace treaty. This is mind-boggling stuff, if you know anything about the region or the Many, many, many countless attempts at peace in the Middle East that our presidents have made uh, specifically over the last 70 years or so. Almost every president has attempted some form of peace, tried to broker some kind of agreement. Notice again the phrase in that day in verse 21, and the Lord will be known to Egypt. There's only one Lord. Read Ephesians 4. One faith, one hope, one baptism. There's exactly one. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. Keep noticing what's being said here. This is a revival in Egypt. This is the whole country going rogue against radical Islam and turning towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they'll make a vow unto the Lord and performance. And the Lord will strike Egypt. Now hold it. Not strike it in a bad way. Notice what it says. He will strike it and heal it. Egypt has been diseased for a long time. Were it not for tourism, I don't know what they'd actually have. If you couldn't go visit the pyramids in Giza or you couldn't go to Luxor, to Thebes, Abu Simbel, if you couldn't take a cruise on Lake Nasser, 
I, I really don't know what else they would be doing. They do still raise some cotton. They will return to the Lord. And he will be entreated by them and heal them. In other words, there, there is going to be a national revival in Egypt in that day. Now, here's another crazy one. When you travel to the Middle East, every single country has an extremely secure border that does not allow passage of anyone from Israel into its country without a whole bunch of drama. Our last trip when we traveled into Jordan to go to the, to the rock city of Petra, uh, we, we wasted probably four plus hours in total just trying to get across the Jordanian border. Why? Because we came from Israel. We had to walk across a no man's land. We parked the Jewish buses away so that they couldn't be seen on the Jordanian side. And we walk across this area and finally get to these gates. They were very nice, by the way. I don't want to paint the wrong picture here. It wasn't like it was troubling or problematic. But we ended up having uh, a Jordanian border police on our bus the whole time. Strange. There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. That would be a highway from Egypt, which is south of Israel, all the way through modern-day Jordan, all the way through modern-day Syria into modern-day Turkey. That, that would be a very, very, very long highway. And right now, that highway does not exist. There are roads, but there's no highway. And the Assyrian will come to Egypt and the Egyptian to Assyria and the Egyptians will serve the Assyrians. Strangely enough, the Egyptian people still kind of have that uh, pharaonic understanding of the world. And to some degree, I would think rightly so. They have an incredible history. It's mind-boggling. Every time I, I read something in National Geographic history about the tombs of Egypt, and you just realize these things are thousands of years old, and they're so incredibly ornate, beautiful, highly technologically advanced for the time. The Egyptian people remember that. And one day it's going to come back. But in the meantime, they're going to find the Lord. Notice verse 24, when a my favorite Old Testament prophetic verses. In that day, Israel will become one of three. This is the same picture of a threefold cord. One of three, intertwined and so twisted together that they form one. That's the picture. They will become one of three. Inseparable. Now think of this today. Israel be one of three with Egypt and Assyria. That absolutely is not the case today. Israel's mortal enemy, their most dangerous enemy, the one that they are constantly surveilling, is Assyria, Syria itself, and part of Turkey, and Lebanon, and those nations that are north in that region at this time. One of their next greatest enemies uh, would certainly be Egypt just because of its proximity to their southern border. If you take those two nations, they cut Israel off from the rest of the world, primarily save the Mediterranean Sea. If Jordan joined in with that group, they, they would be completely surrounded. But it says, 
a blessing in the midst of the land who the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, blessed is Israel. I love this. Blessed is Israel, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands. In other words, there's a future. Church, there's a future for these Arab nations that have been deceived, who follow after a false god to this day, who believe that somehow that Allah will see their martyrdom and, and recognize that they're deserving of paradise that one day they're going to know the Lord. Egypt will be my people, God says. The Lord says that. Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. And you're saying, well, when's that going to happen? In that day. And I believe what this is, is a picture of the very last days when the Antichrist will turn on Egypt. He's going to start to conquer and move towards Africa. Uh, and for sake of time, because we covered uh, the book of Daniel recently, and I shared on Zechariah 12 and Zechariah 14, Joel 2, uh, during that study, I'm going to be a fairly brief in, in the next few moments. But I believe this is looking forward to the Great Tribulation. And I believe it's looking forward to a time when the Antichrist rises and begins to conquer that region of the world. When, when the Gog-Magog conflict has happened, Russia has come in to aid, and the Iranians, who would be the Persians in your Bible, uh, have joined in and attacked. And here's Israel, and, and they're trapped. They're inside of this little country. And it appears as though the ones that will actually come to rescue them uh, will be aided by the Lord, and it will be their former mortal enemies. Because they're going to see the Antichrist for who he is. You see, the Antichrist, when he finally comes, and again, this is the battle of Armageddon, and as, as you think about it, um, it is extremely in-depth, and, and again, I'll not cover everything tonight. We did that in the book of Revelation, and as I said, we just finished this in Daniel chapter 11. But as you think on this great battle that will one day take place, the battle gets its name there from Revelation chapter 16, verses 14 to 16. But as you look at Armageddon, this, this place that's on the spur of Mount Carmel that overlooks the Jezreel Valley. There's a couple of things you need to remember about that time. The Bible says that actually that final part of that battle is going to take place right outside of Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 12 says that Jehoshaphat is the place, the, the valley of decision where God will, in essence, in Christ Jesus will come back and, and simply win this battle on his own. And God intends to bring all these nations together and save them. You see, sometimes people look at the prophetic word of God and they say, it's kind of gloomy. You know, it doesn't offer much of a future. But in the destruction of the tribulation is also hope. Because God's not simply saying, I'm going to kill everybody. He's saying, I'm going to make it impossible for you to not choose. You're going to have a choice. You're going to have a choice, the mark of the beast, and be able to buy and sell or lose your life and find it in Christ. Can I tell you that's what we have to do today? He who seeks to gain his life will lose it, but he who seeks to lose it for my sake shall find it, Jesus said. Life has always been found in finding Christ. 
And so this preview of this battle, and again, it's just over and over again. Uh, Zechariah chapter 12, in that day, on that day, the leaders of Judah will be this incredible force. The land of Judah will once again be uh, set out as, as its rightful throne of, of the king David. And Jesus will one day sit on that throne on a temple that isn't there yet. I'm kind of excited, church. As I started thinking about this today, you know, people have asked me, and feel free next Thursday, call in with that question. Do you think that, you know, the end is tomorrow? Do you think the Antichrist is already on the earth? If you have those questions, ask them. Be delighted to address that during Ask the Pastor. But I know what your Bible says. It says in that day that the Lord will go out and fight against the nations of the earth because they will have come against Israel. And as the times grow closer to the end, you can expect to see Israel isolated. You can expect to see the world hate them more and more. You can expect to see them rise and the nations around them descend. And again, when I say that, the Bible says it, I don't say it. And it certainly isn't true about every single person who lives in Jordan, nor every single person who lives in Israel. They're not all going to be good. It won't be every Syrian's going to be bad. It won't be every person who's in Lebanon. Lebanon used to also be a Christian nation. There were Phoenicians, Phoenician Christians, just like there were Coptic Christians in, in Egypt. But the Lord's going to sort all that stuff out, all those things that you've been worried about. What does God do with all those Bedouins? The gospel's going to be preached to them. What does he do with those people who right now live in nations that have Sharia law to where the, the gospel is? If the gospel is completely hindered because of Sharia law, then God is not God. He's not able. He's got to have a plan. And I can't tell you whether it's one at a time coming, you know, somebody walking across the street and, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? Whether the Holy Spirit reveals uh, the Savior to them individually, which happens frequently in that part of the world, I will tell you, because I bumped into those people who did not have the gospel shared with them in a tract. They came to know Christ by simply receiving a vision from the Lord. They knew they needed to grab a Bible, and they opened it up. It's like, I need to know Jesus. You see, there will be a king of the north, false prophet, and the Antichrist will join together. It will rebuild that temple. The revived Roman Empire will raise up. But all I know is what my Bible says regarding these nations that right now are Israel's mortal enemy. My Bible says one day, Israel and Assyria, Syria and Turkey, parts of Lebanon and Egypt are going to be a threefold cord in the Lord. I can't wait. That's kind of exciting to me. It's like, Lord, you've got to be working those things out right now. You see, though the battle of Armageddon, this preview of it that's found here, that looks forward to Joel chapter 2 being fulfilled, this army, this forces are beyond number, mighty. The day of the Lord, he says, will be great, Joel tells us. Maybe these things like this pandemic are setting us up for that time. I'm not telling you, I heard from the Lord that Jesus is going to blow the trumpet before I get out of the facility tonight. 
but it's a whole lot closer than it was when I was a child. And so keep your eyes on Jesus, you see, because I was born when the Suez Canal was being dug. I was born before the dams were built on the Nile River. I, I was alive when those things were taking place. I was born just after Israel became a nation. All these things have happened in my lifetime. We're close. So I pray you're close to the Lord because Israel one day will become Christian. Egypt one day will become Christian. Assyria one day will become Christian. Saved, they'll know the Savior. And I pray that you know the Savior too. And we have pastors online that can pray with you. If you don't know him, we want to share the gospel with you and send you some materials. So click on that little box on the screen. Send us an email. Uh, Just let us know that you want to know the Lord. And we'll make contact and make sure that you're offered that opportunity. But it's really simple. Just confess you're a sinner. Recognize that Jesus came and died for your sins, paying the price for those sins. And if you'll believe in him, you'll be saved. That simple gospel message still works. And so I pray you find the king. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. And Lord, though maybe some tonight are struggling with some disappointment over these regulations and laws that have been passed and things that we're forced to deal with in this time. Lord, it'll be short. Compared to eternity, it will be minuscule. As Job understood, it will be fine dust on the scales. It won't matter. And so, Lord, would you just give us great strength, give us encouragement, speak into our hearts the beauty of your plan for us. Keep us, Lord, in this time of isolation from people we'd love to see. Keep us busy about your business. Help us to send emails to our friends who don't know you. Maybe reach out on Facebook or Instagram with a gospel message. Talk to people about you, Lord, in virtual ways. Because the Spirit is able to save to the uttermost all who cry upon the name of the Lord. And so we love you. We praise you. Thank you for telling us about the the future in advance. Lord, more than two and a half thousand years in advance, you predicted these things. And so, Lord, we bless you. We draw strength from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.